is it's a decree or an order that's issued by the authorities. Here in America, an ordinance is it's a, a local kind of law. But when we think about the laws and the ordinances in America on a federal level even, do you know how many federal laws there are here in America? Any guesses? Two million? Two million? Two million? No. Two million? <laughs> <laughs> Two million. <laughs> of course, Tim says there's too many. Uh, actually, nobody knows. There, we haven't even been able to count them all. If you look at just the Internal Revenue Code that's a, uh, that was written in 18, began in 1874, you have 3.4 million words put into that unknown number of laws. There's 20,000 laws that govern uh, the rules that have to do with guns alone. Uh, Congress has enacted approximately 200 to 600 statutes during each of its terms, 115 terms. That's more than 30,000 statutes that have been enacted since 1789. Perhaps you've heard the study where they say that uh, your average professional individual uh, commits up to five felonies a day, unbeknownst to themselves. So look around at your neighbor right now and notice that they, they are a felon. Un unprosecuted, unrecognized, but like Julie Hedner, you wouldn't think to look at her, but according to that statistic, or sweet, you know, look at Zella sitting in the wheelchair. She's a felon, according to the U.S. constitutional laws. Many, many ordinances. But the church only has two ordinances. The church only has two ordinances that have been handed down through God's word, through Jesus Christ, to the body as a whole. We have baptism and communion, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper. And these are the two ordinances that we practice in our church. About once a year we go down to a river somewhere and we baptize people that have committed their lives to Christ or have returned to Christ after having walked away from Him. It signifies the gospel transformation in their life. And similarly, also indicating that gospel transformation, we observe communion once a month. And then, given the circumstances, we haven't observed communion for many months now. But today, we will. And what I would like to do, and perhaps you can turn to John chapter 17 as we do it. I would like to scratch from your mind, for the next so many minutes, the idea of communion as being something that we just eat and we drink. And it's a ritual, it's a habit that we do uh, semi-regularly. <laughs> I want you to stretch that idea out of your mind as we think of the word communion. And let's set our minds on the spiritual reality, the spiritual, deep reality of what communion is. What a life living in communion with God is. To do that, let's look at John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Christ is... Praying one of his last prayers while on earth. He knows he's at the end of his life. And it, we're going to be in different places, but if you look at verse 20, he's praying for his disciples. But then look what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, not only for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's, that's you. The only way you have come to believe in Christ is through the testimony of the disciples. So now, the rest of this prayer, Christ is praying for you specifically. 
And what does he say? Here's the prayer. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. We see this idea also back in verse 10. It says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in this world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which I have give, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And so here, we don't have to discern or discover or figure out what Christ wants for your life because he prayed it out loud and it was recorded. All we have to do is read. And Christ has an intended objective for your life. His desire, his prayer request, his aim for your life is oneness. Oneness with each other. The other believers that you see around this gathering right now, the believers that you sit down and eat dinner with, that you call on the phone, that you serve alongside, that you minister with and minister to, Christ's prayer, the aim for your life is oneness. Oneness with each other. And that in our oneness with each other, we would also have oneness with Him, Jesus. And that our oneness with Him and with each other would also be oneness with the Father. And I believe that this multifaceted, many-person oneness should be captured by the word communion. Coming together. The uniting. And so here we see the aim of communion, the purpose, the goal. Christ has a desire, he's aimed your lives toward communion. Communion is where two lives intersect. It's the spiritual mystery of multidimensional, supernatural co-occupancy of the same space. Two hearts, yours and God. Two hearts in love with the same things. Two hearts broken over the same offenses. Two beings that share in one spirit. The intersecting of life energies united in common focus. The fixed overlap of the essence of two separate individuals. This is communion. You see, there's such a richness and a depth there and a breadth. We cannot fit it into an English word, especially one that we've become so familiarized with. The Greek word for this is koinonia. Koinonia. It's often translated fellowship. But again, I think the word, the English word fellowship falls too short for what we are describing here and for what Jesus is praying for here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, God is faithful that through whom, uh, God is faithful through whom you were called into koinonia. With his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful through whom you were called into communion with his son, Jesus Christ. That means that God has determined this. This is your calling. This is your life purpose. This is the trajectory that God has 
set you upon when he planted you into existence, that you would find communion with him. So we have the aim of communion. But we also see the example of communion. As we look at Jesus Christ's words and his life throughout the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John, we see the example of communion. We see what it's like when a human being lives in communion with God. Christ said, I and the Father are one. He said, I do as the Father has commanded me. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said, I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. And he testified of this again and again in many different settings, to many different people. He, what he was declaring was this impeccable overlap and alignment between the Father and the Son. They had communion. And he did it as an example for you and for me that we could find that same overlap. And then, not just living it out, but then at the end of his life, he's praying. And not just for his disciples, but for all disciples that would come after. That you would find that same communion that he demonstrated in his life. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, we see a... Let me turn there real quick. In Isaiah 44, 6, we see an example of this communion. Listen to what he says. Thus says the Lord. That Lord, anytime you see the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's the proper name for God, Yahweh. They just didn't want to write it down. And so they, they, it was too holy of a word to write down, so they wrote down the word Lord. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. So how many people are identified there? Two people, Yahweh and his Redeemer. Together they say this. I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Who is like me? And so we see two entities that recognize each other, have distinct names and identifications, and yet they speak with one voice, affirming, I am the first and the last, and there is no other besides me. When you start to live your life in communion with God, He can start to speak through you and minister through you and show grace and pour His grace through you as if you are one with Him. And He works through you for other people and He serves through you. He is that, that personal contact that people long for. He gives that to them through those who are in communion with Him. Jesus being the perfect example of a life in communion with God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of his nature. What an amazing verse. Jesus, what, how descriptive. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So think about the sun, not S-O-N. Think about the sun, S-U-N. The, 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 the solar orb in the sky, alright? It radiates light and heat to us here on earth, right? And just as that orb radiates that energy, God radiates His glory, and His glory radiates in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the exact imprint of His nature. 
And so we have, we experience Christ. If we were to step surface on the sun, of course, we'd be consumed instantly. And yet we can experience the sun because it radiates towards us. And we can experience God because He radiated His glory to us through Christ. Two lives in communion. One other passage. Just flip back there. Keep your finger in John 17. Flip back a page to John chapter 14 as we see an example of a life in communion with God. Of course, John 14, these are, he's, he's already kind of given his last instructions to his disciples. In verse 1 he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. He gives them the assurance that, that, that their, his father's house has a place for them. Verse 4 he says, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can, we, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. You know the way because I am the way. Verse 7, if you had not known me, you would have, if you, sorry, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip types up and he says, Lord, show us the Father. Maybe he was thinking back to the two that got to see Jesus in his transfigured glory on the mountain. Maybe he's thinking back and feeling like he missed out. And he said, Lord, if you could just show us the Father, that would be enough for us. And Jesus said to him in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still, not, still do not know me, Philip? He said, I want to see the Father. And Jesus said, Don't you know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you... Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? If you see me, you see the Father. This is an example of a life perfectly lived in communion with Christ. When we say, I want to glorify God with my life, that's what we're saying. We're saying, I want people to see me and interact with God. I want them to see me, but not look at me, see me like a lens. And through me, I want them to discover who God is. That only comes with a life that's lived in communion. So God's aim for you is that you would live in communion. He gave an example through the Son of Jesus Christ. An example of a life lived in communion. But communion doesn't just happen in our lives. We have to be intentional. This fixed overlap of the essence of two individuals, we have to be aware of what we're doing. It's not an abstract idea, it's a lived idea. It's not just a positional thing, it's functional. And if you want this communion with the Father, with the divine being through whom all life exists, if you want communion with Him, then you have to find it the same way that our example Jesus did. And so Jesus, by living His life, gave us an example of the execution of communion. How can you find communion with God in your life? And I believe if you're going to experience communion with God in your life, it's going to be at the convergence of at least four spiritual imperatives that we see on display in Christ's light. And then he passes on to us the first which is faith. You have this, this divine attribute in your life, faith. That's the first step in finding communion with God. Again, here, and, and, and everything else sprouts from this. Without this, nothing else is even possible. 
And Jesus touches on this in John 17, where he says, excuse me, in verse 1 he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look down at verse 8. It says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. That's faith. And they have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they have believed, that's faith, that you sent me. Look at verse 12. So in verses 1 through 4, we see the substance of what our faith is. That Christ came from the Father. That he was a perfect representation of his glory. And that he has authority over all flesh. See, that's important. That doesn't mean that he's got the ability to do miracles. The fact that Christ has authority over all flesh for those who believe in him means he takes your wicked, sinful corpse of a body and he gives it new life. He transforms it. He purges you of who you were and he imports his righteousness. He can only do that if he has authority over sinful flesh to do that. That's why we have a new master when we believe in this. When we believe, then he gives us eternal life. And I've said it before, don't think of eternal life as something that's on a time scale that just goes forward forever. Think of it as, as infinite life. Immense. Broad. Deep. Wide. High. That's what eternal life is for those who believe. And so that's what, that's what he gives us. And look down also in verse 8. And we say, he says, I, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and go to come and know them in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Then down in verse 12, we see other benefits. Verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the one that was prophesied, which is Judas. But none of you have been prophesied to be lost. As long as you are in Christ, He is with you, and He's guarding you, and He's keeping you. That's come, that comes through faith. And without that faith, there is no alignment. There is no communion with God. It's dependent on that faith. Look back at just the page over, chapter 16, in verse 27, he describes it again. He says, For the Father Himself... Self loves you because you have loved me and have believed. And have believed. So without faith, there's, there's no communion. It starts with faith, but it doesn't end with faith. What, is, what does James say? Faith without works is dead, right? I think, I think a, for our English minds, a better translation of that would be faith without action is dead. Faith put to action is obedience. And that's the second converging point. We're going to have true communion with God as demonstrated in Christ's life. Not only faith, but obedience. And we see obedience in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You are as they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. That's obedience. They have kept your word. Obedience is 
is the natural thing for the person who has been redeemed to do. You know, I grew up, and we're all on different spiritual roads that got maturing us at a different rate. And I just think back through my life at all of the misconceptions I had about obedience. Of course, it started out, and many people started out, where I thought obedience was the way to earn God's favor. If I do this, then God's going to approve of me. If I obey in this way, then He's going to give me all the things that I need. Or just, just His approval. Make it just, just give me His approval so I get into heaven. Of course, then I started learning about grace. But then the next misconception I had was, well, because of grace, now obedience isn't required. Of course, that's a misconception as well. So then from there I went on and I thought, I know, I know what my obedience is. My, my obedience is me proving that I'm redeemed. I don't think that's exactly dead on either. And even to some degree, the idea that grace or that obedience is my response. It's just what I try to do as a response to God saving me and forgiving me. Now, I'm kind of in a different place. I believe that obedience is, because of who I am in Christ, it's my nature to obey Him. My obedience aligns me with all that God is. It puts me on a path of blessing. It's an expression of His grace in my life. My obedience is the intercept where I find communion with Christ. I can't say I want communion with Christ. I want all of His essence and all of His being and all of His grace and all of His attributes and all of His blessing. I can't say I want that and then walk in sin. It's foolish. And what you do determines what you really want. If you want communion, you walk in obedience because that's where the overlap is. Faith and obedience. Remember John 14, 31. Jesus said, I do as the Father commanded me. And why? So that the world will see that I love the Father. And that leads us to the third intercepting principle. This convergence of faith and obedience and love. Without love, you're not going to find communion with God. What did Jesus say? On what does all the prophets and all the laws hang upon? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. If you want communion, real overlapping communion, unity with God, you can't do it without faith. You're not going to find it without obedience. And you're not going to get there without love. One last one. Truth. Look at John chapter 7. You can, you can look and uh, just take note about love. John, verse 24, verse 26. Um, in the previous chapter, verse uh, 27, all those are talking about the love that God, Christ has for the Father, for us. But look at truth now. Truth is throughout this passage. Verse 7 of chapter 17. Now they know that's truth. It's speaking about truth. Uh, in verse... Uh, 17. He says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. Set them apart. Make them unique. Draw them out of just similarity with the world. Put them in a unique position. That's what sanctify means. And you do it through truth. If your mind is not set on truth, you have no idea what communion with God is. Christ never thought about that which was false. That's what, that which was foolish. That which was wrong. He set his mind on truth. And we know we have the mind of Christ according to 1 Corinthians 1. According to Philippians chapter 2, he says, Now think of the same way that Christ 
thought. We need to have our minds set on truth. What did he say in John chapter 8? Turn, turn back there. Just keep your finger in 17. Just turn back a couple pages to chapter 8. He talks about truth. Verse 31. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide, that's another good word for communion, abiding. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you don't know the truth, you're not abiding. You're not in communion with him. And of course, they, they refuted this, but he goes on, and he says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you still seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Pretty clear, one of those individuals was in communion with the father, and one was not. If you want communion with God, it comes at the convergence of faith and obedience and love and truth. The cross point, like a bullseye. The cross point is where we see the fullness of who we were created to be on display. Think about it. Our minds are set on truth. Our hearts are set on love. We put obedience into action with our bodies. We exercise faith with our spirits. And what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there we have it, the perfect prescription for communion with God. And then this brings us to the expression of communion, which is the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to ask our, we're going to, in the middle of the sermon here, we're going to ask our worship team to come up and uh, get behind their instruments. And I'm going to ask the elders to come and grab the communion elements right over there. We're going to take communion together here. But based on everything that we've just walked through, the aim of God for your life is communion with Him. Not observing communion like a ritual, but living communion with faith, obedience, love, and truth. Looking at the example of communion in Christ's life, a life perfectly in alignment with God. We see what He wants for us. Then we execute that communion in our life. But when we come together once a month to do this, this is when we just, we're expressing that communion. We're expressing the communion that we live. We're celebrating it. We're expressing it. It's a testimony. It's a prayer. It's a commitment. That's what this is when we do this. And then once again, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. It says, yes, go ahead. It says the cup of blessing that we bless. He's talking, this is Paul talking about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Guess what that word participation is? Koinonia. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? 
That is communion. When we do this, when we live this out and celebrate it in the manner that we're about to celebrate it, we are expressing our communion with the body and blood of Christ. The gospel essence of the person and work of Jesus. So we're going to begin to play. We're going to sing. We invite you to sing along or just let them sing over you. But the elements are going to be distributed as we play and as we sing. Just hang on to them. They're all The bread is on top of the cup. And then we'll take it together. But as we sing, just remain seated. Perhaps it's a time for you to pray or just a time to bow your head and reflect on what true communion with Christ means.
And as you do, behold not the body of Christ, but the representation of true food. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There we come, first full circle back around to a life of communion. Let's just take some time quietly by yourself, say a prayer of thanks for the communion that God offers you through the brokenness of his body. Then we'll pray once more and drink. God, we thank you and, and believe in your prophecy when you said that by his wounds we would be healed. And Lord, we need healing from our sins, from our transgressions. And we take this wafer now as a commitment, as a prayer, as a confession, as a testimony that you have cleansed us from our sins, that we may never return to them again. Why live in those self-afflicted wounds when you have saved us from it? Thank you for the salvation that comes to the broken body of Christ. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Covenant. A new promise, a new way of interacting with my people comes through my blood for the remission of sins. Drink it, all of you.
looked at the example of Christ's life, example of communion. We looked at how we execute communion in our life, and then just now we partake of the expression of that communion. So one last point I want to bring out as we bring this sermon to a close is the outcome of communion in your life. What what are the results? What are the, the people that live in communion with God? What do their lives look like? And we see all the clues right here in this in this passage. First of all, we have peace in chapter 16 and verse 33, the, the last verse before we go into chapter 17. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That peace is found when we are in Christ. The answer to his prayer, he's praying for you. We're living in a world of turmoil. Our church is in a little bit of dissettledness right now. Perhaps your family is or your body is or other relationships you have are in turmoil. Our country is in turmoil. But for those that are in Christ, we have peace. And the tighter we are in communion with Christ, the greater that peace is. Quickly, we see not only peace, but we see glory. In verse 1, he talks about his glory. And then in verse 1, in verse 5, verse 10, all these verses, he's talking about that glory that is in me. I'm going to put in those who are in me so that others will see the display of God's greatness. The attributes, the beauty of who God is, the appeal. That which draws us to Christ, to God, that's his glory. And God wants that to be radiating out of you in the same way that Christ radiates God's glory, that people would see us and are drawn to God. So we have joy, I'm sorry, we have peace, we have glory. Then in verse 13, now I'm coming to you, and these things I have spoken in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy, that's the, that's the natural outcome of lives that are lived in tight communion with Christ. It's good to laugh. We're going to stick around after the service here. We're going to laugh. We're going to enjoy each other's company. We're going to have joy. And God, God has put so many things in this world for us to enjoy. And He wants us to enjoy it as people who have been redeemed. He wants us to enjoy it and follow that joy back to the source of where it came from. God doesn't want us to be boring, solemn, serious people. We can be serious and still have joy. We can be solemn and still smile. God doesn't want his people to be boring. One last one. Not only peace, not only glory, not only joy, but fulfillment. In verse 4 he says, this is it, I'm coming to the end. I've glorified you on earth. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. On your deathbed, wouldn't that be a great testimony? To be able to say, I left nothing undone. There's nothing I still need to do. I did it all. And we talk about the joy being fulfilled. More than anything, every sin that draws you aside is because more than anything, you long for fulfillment. Every sin that ever calls after you is because you think that'll fulfill me. That'll fulfill me in the moment or it'll fulfill me down the road. But it's a lie. It's deception. The only fulfillment you will find is when you are in tight communion with Christ. And so we're going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one last song, a celebration. Seven years we've been in church now. And that's worth celebrating. And we've got a large crowd of people here. And we're going to start the celebration right now with an old song that's been kind of a around here.